The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Ben, thank you very much for coming in to Resonance 104.4 FM here in London Bridge. And it's taken us a couple of years to get to this stage, to the microphones. Mm. And I would say... Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. I mean, it's been a long time coming. Because you are, I would identify you, and you can disabuse me of this if you like, of being central to what's known loosely as a kind of psychedelic renaissance in terms of research and just, just looking at the whole psychedelia all over again is is that fairly accurate that you're 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 quite you are very involved well yeah i mean my angle is very much the medical clinical neuroscience angle Mm -hmm. um and certainly within that small part of psychedelic culture and research um there's not a huge number of of us um so obviously as a doctor that's my my main focus but obviously i have a great interest in the broader psychedelic culture which is uh, why we put on this conference breaking convention so which is obviously a lot more than just the medicine and clinical bits so um i've got to kind of foot in both the bits but i would say it's probably a size 12 in the medical bit and a size 4 in the non-medical bit okay good that's i mean i relate to that big time it's hmm. it's I mean, what's what's your qualification, doctor? What sort of doctor are you? Because there's many friends of doctors from their PhDs at university, oh, but you're a clinical medical doctor. I'm a doctor, medical doctor. I went yep. to medical school mm-hmm. and studied medicine and surgery and qualified and started working um, in medicine and surgery and then specialised in mental health and then became a member of the World Culture Psychiatrists, then specialised in child and adolescent psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So worked in child and adolescent psychiatry for about 10 years, and then in the last six years have moved into adult addiction psychiatry mm-hmm. while still doing a bit of the adolescent stuff, and um, in the last 10, 15 years doing this research. So at the moment, I'm also a kind of pharmacology researcher, and I've got a research position at Imperial College London. So. Mm-hmm. I've got about four different jobs at the moment, which is quite confusing. I'm, I'm envious of your uh, schedule because you've always seemed to be doing so many, dare I say, exciting things out there in that kind of science world. You work with David Nutt, don't you? Yeah, I've worked with David for over 10 years now. Um, since uh, he, he used to be working in the Bristol Pharmacology Department, and mm-hmm. uh, that's when I met him and started working with him on the UK's first psilocybin study. Um, and then he moved to Imperial in mm-hmm. London and kind of took three quarters of the department with him. They all kind of moved with him when he got this new position. Okay. Uh, I stayed in Bristol. So um, with him coming back to Bristol to work on this project that we're now doing with MDMA, it's a bit of a homecoming for him. So, yeah, I've been working very closely with David and others in his team for over 10 years. OK, so, Um we're covering so much ground so quickly just in that, that, that sentence. Like you say, psilocybin study. I mean, that's something that couldn't have existed 15, 20 years ago. And why has it not existed? What, what, what happened? Well, within the history of psychedelics in, in research, we kind of, we talk about the dark ages being between sort of the late 60s and the 1990s. So, mm-hmm. as you know, the first era of psychedelic research was the 1890s when there was a lot of work done with mescaline and nitrous oxide and then 
things went a bit cold for a few decades. And then with the rediscovery of psychedelics through Albert Hoffman in the 40s, we entered the second period of psychedelic research, which was from the 40s to the end of the 60s. Um, then we have this dark ages bit where not a great deal happened um, in the sort of 70s and early and 80s. And then in the 90s, we have this this new era, the psychedelic renaissance that we're talking about now, but it's mm -hmm. really the the third area of a uh, uh, third era rather of psychedelic research. So, yeah, for many years, um, drugs like psilocybin or LSD or MDMA and um, DMT were not on the not on the radar at all for medicine. They were very much pariahs, mm. um, maligned and demonized by the uh, the authorities and very few doctors or, or research scientists were able or prepared to work with them. So it's been an incredible flourish of activity in the last 10, 15 years. And I felt incredibly privileged to be part of that and to see it change an awful lot, actually, in those mm -hmm. 15 years. What sort of changes? What, 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 what do you mean? Well, the most obvious change is just all of the new studies that have come online. You know, we, we're now at a point where there are more psychedelic research studies and papers coming out than there were in the 60s. Wow. So people think of the 60s as this psychedelic era. Um, we've now eclipsed that. So there's more work in more university departments up and down the land and throughout the world than there ever were in the 60s. So we've eclipsed that. So that's the, the big, big change that's happened, and it's really accelerated. But I think we've also got this change culturally as well and within the media so not a not a month goes by without a, a scientific paper or medical paper being published in the medical press but also not a month goes by without a mainstream popular press um, article about psychedelics we're seeing i mean what did i i did a i did a piece for l the other day and okay, yeah. marie claire mm -hmm. you know not to mention sort of the guardian in the, the independent and new york times and you know so um, this is popular culture now, as yeah. well as mm -hmm. um, this great place in medicine. I'm wondering how long till the Daily Mail <laughs> offers sort of microdosing kits and oh, things. But that's <laughs> we've certainly done. I've done articles for the Daily Mail. They're not as bad as you might think, actually. Um, they're you know that thing about the Daily Mail is they're more of a barometer of what Middle England is doing. So yeah. as soon as Middle England get onto this idea of it, then it'll it'll go forward. I think one of the most interesting thing that's happened in the media in the last 10 years is we're seeing articles that don't don't hark back to the 60s you know 10 15 years ago if i did a piece on psychedelics for the media popular media you can guarantee that it's going to have all these grainy pictures of woodstock and yep. hippies or, yep. or gurning ravers because mm -hmm. that's how that's that's what they thought the people um, would associate and now you can read an article in an, in a contemporary media piece about MDMA that might not even mention ecstasy yep. or a piece about LSD or psilocybin that just doesn't mention Timothy Leary in the 60s. Um, almost as if the young people who are reading this don't really know or care about that. Um, mm. it, this is a now thing. This is, this is what's happening for them right now. And the, the historical bit is not so important. And uh, I think that's great because... Um, I think a lot of water had to go under the bridge, actually, Simon. Mm. Uh, we, it's almost like we needed those 30-year 30 30 hiatus to, mm -hmm. to, um, to sort of put to bed a lot of the negative press. So now we're looking at it with new eyes. Um, now, of course, 
all of us in the field are really interested in the history as well. And, of course, the old guard are still there and all wheeled out at the conferences. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what's really great about, say, a psychedelic conference anywhere in the world is you've got such a mixture of people. You've got these kind of... Uh, elderly people walking around in their grey suits and their grey hair with their walking sticks who mm -hmm. were there in the 50s. Yep. And you've got 16-year-olds with bright blue hair and sort of uh, gas masks on and these <laughs> yeah, sort of cyberpunk generation. Yep. And, I've, you know, as a, as a doctor going to medical conferences, that's so refreshing yeah. to have such a broad mixture of people all of whom have this shared interest, which is the psychedelic experience. So yep. It's great. It's certainly a very broad score. Um, I... My first introduction to the sort of um, academic side, David had uh, David Nutt had um, not a seminar or something at UC was it UCL or Imperial? It's Imperial, isn't it? And he said this was the first academic, official, formal psychedelic conference since the 1960s, and that was almost classically academic. Lots of PowerPoint, lots of you know ties, and it was all very mm. very. Very, very formal, and I found that really kind of refreshing because mm. my interest, I've, I've had a great psychedelic interest for a very long time, and to see it treated with such respect was gorgeous. Mm. Mm. And one of the points I took home there was um, I remember, and of course my memory is slightly flaky, as someone saying that Aldous Huxley wrote Timothy Leary more or less saying, please, shut up. <laughs> and Yeah, there it, was... Um I mean, there's, there is a, quite a split back then, and indeed mm. there's a bit of a split now, and hopefully we'll come on to talk about this, because it's a, it's, a, it's a point that interests me quite a lot about, mm. you know, this is a subject where we are trying to be as diverse as possible and in, inclusive as possible, uh -huh. but there are some quite diverse views about psychedelics and psychedelic culture, and certainly how they ought to be disseminated or how accessible they ought to be, mm. and... Um, I wonder whether we are starting to experience a bit of a divergence within the community. Um, and, and, and it's the same divergence as the one that happened in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. Of Do these drugs, should they stay under wraps with the authorities and the medical profession, or should they be out there and open to all? Mm. And what difference would it make if it went one way or the other? And I think these are really interesting questions, and we're, we're asking these increasingly. And one of the things we do at Breaking Convention, which is a major UK conference for psychedelics, and uh, actually predated David's there by 10 years. Just, okay, uh, just to good. Make Didn't that know clear. that. Didn't yeah. know that. Um, uh, no, five years. Um, is we, we, we strive really hard to be inclusive of both these divergent points of view. Um, but it's, it, it's a challenge at times, you know, because people feel very... Um, people, people feel very... Uh, have a strong ownership over psychedelics. Sure. You know, these are my drugs. You know, yep. this is the way it should be done. And it's, it's, it's psychedelics. And I mean, in going back to the history of psychedelics, because it's it's hugely interesting. It's very different to if you think of a meth lab or sort of heroin sales mm. and things like that, where still to this day, as far as I can see, that. I mean, going back to the original Orange Sunshine manufacturers, that they would manufacture X amount and then give X amount away. This real hippie ethic of sort of give it away so that destroys the market mm. and the market, which means it's distributed widely, yet there's enough money to continue production. And that's still there, hence this, this ownership. And of course, how can you be subjective 
objective rather about mm. something that's so subjective as a very very powerful psychedelic experience mm. which under underpins it all well it's i think you you there are certain similarities that that both camps are interested in you know the, the like you say the nature of the psychedelic experience itself and one of the ways i personally kind of resolve this issue is if i'm if i'm taking the 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 opinion that what i want above all else is to see these um these compounds licensed as medicines for my patients mm -hmm. then what will achieve that best sure and so that's the question i ask myself now you know there's part of me that loves the idea of psychedelics being freely available to everyone and the whole community and society using them safely for personal growth and development and uh, the cognitive liberty argument, you know, it's our right to get high. Mm -hmm. We don't need any data. We don't need any any science. We don't need any um, doctors talking to the pharma industry. It's our right to get high and we should have that. You know, that's, that's a really strong argument in many ways. Yep. But I have to look at that argument with, okay, so... The, the hippies have had 50 years with that argument and it's got absolutely nowhere. It really hasn't, yeah. you know. It's really outrageous that Albert came up with this tremendous molecule 70 years ago and between 1 and 2% of the UK population have taken it. Now that's an outrageously bad outcome after 70 years with this molecule in our society. Mm -hmm. That's so poor. Yeah. Now. You can't blame the hippies for that because they want everyone to take it. But certainly what we've been doing for the last 50 years has not pushed it forward in terms of dissemination. So I, I take this this agenda that there has to be another way. And mm -hmm. so I get a lot of criticism. In fact, I'm sort of on the fence. I get criticism from both sides, actually, Simon. So <laughs> my um, my straight doctor friends say, what are you doing aligning yourself with these crazy hippies? You know, mm -hmm. why don't you study something nice and wholesome like SSRIs? Yeah. You know, you could be a great pharmacologist studying SSRIs. And then all my hippie friends, who are much more fun, say, hey, man, what are you doing working with the man? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't need your yeah. data, man. We don't need this. You just need to everyone should just take LSD and we'd all live in chemical utopia. <laughs> so I'm kind of on the fence. So as I said, the way I resolve it personally is I, I would love the latter. I would love mass dissemination of this substance. But what's going to get it for my patients? What is going to allow me to mm. use it accessibly to the tens of thousands of untreated cases of disorders in the UK that would benefit? Yeah. And my sense is probably not the hippie way Absolutely because not. it would have worked by now yeah and um, there's um, the sunshine makers documentary which is actually one of the better mm -hmm. documentaries and you know you're nodding you agree in that um one of the chemists terrible for names one of the chemists goes to height ashbury they film in height ashbury going well at the beginning we thought this mm. was going to change the world for the better but mm. look at height ashbury five years after mm. they released millions of doses of mm. Californian sunshine and it was prostitution, drug addiction, mm. homelessness and crime. Mm. And amphetamine and heroin problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and not the utopia that was mm. on the tin of orange sunshine <laughs> kind mm. of thing. Yeah, so, you know, uh, the, uh, the other way looking at it, and this is the conclusion I came to in, in my book, Psychedelic Renaissance, is if we work with the man and we get these drugs licensed, we then have an opportunity to get the sort of transpersonal element in through the back door 
of society. Mm. But you're Trans, not transpersonal. Well, sorry, but, you know the the non-medical parts, the mm-hmm. um, the spiritual parts, the mm-hmm. um, the parts about growth and development and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, see, those are not words you can talk to. Talk, talk, talk about when talking to the MHRA about licensing. Mm. They don't want to hear words like bliss, enlightenment, mm-hmm. spirituality. You're not going to get a license for that. But you might get a license for words like trauma, disorder, sure, pathology. Yeah. Um, and I can understand why a lot of people who are quite anti-authoritarian don't like those words or that approach. But yeah. I just don't think it's going to move forward at all until we do that. And, you know... It's sad, you know. You should be able to walk up to the door of 10 Downing Street with big long dreads and a tie-dye T-shirt and say, hey, man, I want to talk about the right to get high. You should be able to. I think it would be a better world if you could. But you just ain't going to get in the door. Well, look at David David Knight himself. He lost yeah. his job because yeah. he... It was very specifically when he suggested... Not suggested. He said, these are the facts. Uh, horse riding is statistically far more dangerous than MDMA. Mm-hmm. And people can't say that. Why well, not? What, what, what you highlight there is, is, is another layer to this issue because I was going to say that first way, walking up to the door with the dreads and the tie-dye t-shirt won't work. So then that, that prompts the idea, OK, we have to do this with data. We need to do this with mm-hmm, government mm-hmm, experts mm-hmm. and doctors and yeah. reams of scientific data. But as you highlighted, that's what David did. He yep. went up to the door with all the data and they still wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't talk about it. So this leaves us in a very impotent position whereby neither the right to get high cognitive liberty argument nor the here's all the data that demonstrates safety and efficacy neither of those work yeah. so then that 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 prompts the, the the question what will change hearts and minds and i think what i'm increasingly coming around to realize is we need a whole mass cultural change that goes beyond the doctors and certainly beyond the festivals and the psychedelic scene we need normalization we need to see these these substances being used safe, safely and effectively by normal people in everyday life. Neither do they want to talk about the hellish experience of near death, nor do they want to talk about the wonderful experience of bliss and enlightenment. They just need to say they've done it. We mm. need changes in, li- in, in the literature, the, in TV. We need it normalised. We need a storyline on EastEnders where two blokes meet in the market and one says, all right, mate, I did ayahuasca last night. Oh, yeah, how was it? Oh, fine. And that's it. That's the end of the story, you know? No sort of talk about life changes. They uh-huh. just talk about the fact they did it. Yeah. And when, when you say need, though, why, why are you saying need? Because this obviously, mm. this is driving you, that you've mm. got a belief in it. Or belief, mm. see, as using... When you were talking earlier on, you mentioned sort of spirituality and bliss and all these words. They're words that I find difficult <laughs> as well. Because I'm, I'm so anti-woo these days, just mm. and and also I'm pro-data, anti-woo, and then you get to the other extreme, the Ten Downing Street, where neither woo nor data is accepted. It seems it's to just, work. No, it's 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 the confusion, the mm. the, the the tips of the iceberg that we can discuss mm. today. Mm. I think I think what I'm saying is what we need is a change of hearts and minds has to come from a much more creative way. We need to really get this into the culture as a normal and safe thing. Um, and a, a good example is the other uh, other changes within other minority groups. Take, say, homosexuality, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed the placard-waving, broken-window demonstrations, street-shouting of the 60s and 70s. That had to happen 
to push things forward in terms of legislation. But actually, what really shifted, I think, for homosexuality and acceptance was in, say, the 90s or the last decade even, where... It's just normal. It's the normalization of it that mm-hmm. really has pushed it forward. And I'm not for a second saying we've eradicated homophobia, no, but no, we've no. taken tremendous steps. It's just you talk to people on the street. It's, it has become so normalized in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Never mind going back to the 60s. You know, and the way that's happened is, oh, you know, Terry, the butcher, he's gay. Oh, is he? I had no idea. Anyway, yeah, exactly. Know, that's no, no, no. what yeah, changed yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. this is where I'm coming at with psychedelics. Mm. Not sort of, oh, you know, that guy who lives in a teepee and howls at the moon, mm-hmm. he does LSD. Just, you know, Terry, estate agent, yeah. he did ayahuasca yesterday. Sure. Oh, wow. You yeah. know, I think if we can get to that level, that's where we're really going to ha- start it to shift. Because then Middle England will just not have anything to, to argue about because mm. it's just out there and it's being done. Well, apart from the fact that Middle England will always have something to argue about. Well, they'll move on I mean, to something it's, else. It's, it's this field, this, this whole area, is, it's so full of politics and, 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 and like I'm stri- I mean, it's into everything. It's absolutely everything. The, the, the basic freedoms, mm. the sort of libertarian, the mm. anarchic, the prohibitions everything everything's in here and mm. the history is beyond fiction the actual you know the history i picked out when mm. looking at the stuff around leonard picard who i often mispronounce um it's it, it it's endless and so emotive mm. i mean don't get me started on the prohibition question or maybe you want to get me started on the well it's, it's it's i mean it's inherent in, in what we're talking about yeah i mean it's the point about, like you say, there are such gross irregularities yes. and grossly erroneous assumptions and legislations surrounding this subject yeah. that bear no rele- relevance to science or no. pharmacology. You know, no. the, the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act is an absolute piece of fiction. It's it's got less validity than homeopathy. Absolutely, you know, and which has got yeah yeah, we, yeah we, yet yet it's on the statute books, which yeah. is extraordinary. And as you know, David put in all of that work in the last ten years to try and tackle this. Um, it's outrageously unscientific. And now that would be okay if it was a a really small piece of legislation. <laughs> millions you know, of millions of people worldwide, their lives totally blighted absolutely. by imprisonment and death yeah. and disfigurement. I mean, through it if it was a piece of legislation that you know is legislating mm. for you know the i don't know the how to grow roses or something sure, that, you know but it's such a wide yeah, wide yeah. reaching piece of legislation that affects so many millions of people so badly mm. and is directly causing harms and deaths of yes, people all the time um, which is the reverse of what it's, it's extraordinary so called intentions but then we look at what it does how it's written how it's it's actually played out the intentions seem to be rather less than benign they're really malign intentions behind there surely I mean one has to be very careful not to slip into the conspiracy theory side mm, of things mm, because mm. we're certainly I, I, I so close to this whole thing well yeah anyway. I can't bear it because there's so yeah. much of it within yeah. psychedelics you yeah. know you can't turn for UFOs and crop circles and things so flat earthers yeah. and all yeah. the rest of it so yeah. you have to be careful not to but you look at the misuse of drugs act and well what interestingly you say you know what not what it was attended, intended for if you actually look at it, because I was actually looking at the original document the other day, it doesn't actually say what it's for. It doesn't actually say this is in order to reduce the harms and usage of drugs. Mm. Um, 
and it's just as well it doesn't say that because it has so patently failed if that was its agenda but Um, but failure itself is no longer a metric is it failure failure on political economic terms is no longer a metric for whether something's good or not yeah is this has taken me towards the field of neuro uh neuropolitics looking you know what's actually going on with a cognitive process when something is so demonstrably wrong Mm. or false Mm. And yet we still mm. have this huge drive. I mean, I, mean I, I think the only way I can really understand it, because I do try and um, I try and put myself into the minds of the people who wrote the damn thing and, yeah. and, still, and still propagate it, um, is that they, back in 1971, they genuinely thought if we ban everything, mm-hmm. they will be eradicated. And, you know, maybe a very noble sentiment. Maybe a world without drugs would be a better world. I mean, it's another whole question. But you have to just assume that they had a noble good intention back in 1971, that this would solve the drug problem. Mm. But here we are, 50 years on, and it has not. It has not solved it's, the drug it's problem. It's actually the reverse. Yeah, it's, it's caused it's... countless deaths, more harm, more deaths, and ironically, more usage. Mm-hmm. It's also completely created crime. Mm-hmm. You know, the entire criminal underworld is based around drugs. Yeah, no we one would, robs banks anymore. I mean, come you, on. You could, you could just end the mafia tomorrow at the stroke yeah. of a pen yeah, by, yeah, just, yeah. by just changing that. Mm. And so it's, it, it hasn't reduced crime. It hasn't improved societies. It hasn't reduced harms and deaths. And it hasn't reduced usage. So what is it doing? Now, so then the question is, what, on what front is the war on drugs still being fought? Sure. And if it's not crime, harm, deaths, usage. The only front left now is the moral front. Absolutely. That there's something just bad about drugs. And the, now that's... The absolute hypocrisy in that. I mean, it's sort of well known... But that, that doesn't count drinking and smoking, because they're not no. drugs. Well, so, there yeah. you go. That, yeah. I mean, that's, so, that's yeah. the hypocrisy So, so they're there. not drugs, so that doesn't count. So you can have a fag in one hand and a pint in the other, yeah. and uh, that's all right, and you can still hate drugs. So, and, and in the terms of many of the Tories, they're actually on the board of British American Tobacco, etc., yeah. etc. Kenneth Clark, for instance, who's been peddling nicotine death for 40 years. So there are years. some sinister forces that are maintaining this. So if it's not having all those effects, and it's only being fought on the moral ground, then we're in a very tricky position, because... To have such an important, wide-reaching policy that's fought only on the moral front mm. means there are so many other things that could be fought on a moral front with well, legislation. Homelessness. Eat, eating meat, mm-hmm. box, yeah. boxing, yeah, yeah, fishing, yeah. horse riding, yeah. religion. Yes, you know, religion, If we're going to ban something just because some people <laughs> don't think it's morally good. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that that's what Middle England thinks. I think what's happening in Middle England is they've just simply been lied to. Yes. Uh, two successive, successive generations of people have been lied to about the actual harms and benefits of drugs. And it's taking a very long time for the, uh, uh, to trickle down the message that these drugs are overwhelmingly safe in almost all cases for mm-hmm. almost all people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds like a controversial thing to say. And indeed, ten, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said that. But I'm increasingly sort of irate about this now that you know I don't like when I do my talks now on uh, on psychedelics I used to spend half an hour talking about safety and all these graphs and everything I don't bother now I just say these drugs are pretty much always safe most of the time in Mm. almost everyone Mm -hmm. next question Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and yet two generations of middle England daily mail readers have been lied to I'm sorry folks of course they lied these you know this this war on drugs is not being fought around safety and nor is it being fought around 
reducing crime or improving lives. It, it's being fought on something else. And mind you, we're talking about the 1971 Act, but what's the recent one the Tories brought in in the last couple of years? I mean, that's another absurdist mm. piece of non-legislating legislation that's so wide. I mean, the, the novel Psychoactive Substances Act 2016 is so bizarre, yeah. so bizarre as to be uh, utterly unworkable. Um, utterly unworkable. They haven't been able to prosecute anyone because you can't prove that these are even psychoactive substances because they've not had any testing. Um, and what, you, about, what about, what about, I mean, sorry, got butting in there, but it, it just, the grin on my face, the fact that one of them actually argued and got um, a thing for poppers so that they could use amyl nitrate because that was his weekend hobby. Yeah. Down at his S&M clubs or yeah. wherever he was, he said, well, they can't do S&M properly without amyl nitrate, yeah. therefore we'll have a clause... And, Similarly, they put nitrous oxide on and then they took it off because it's completely unworkable. I mean, it's used... You know, Starbucks can't operate without nitrous oxide. (laughs) Like, they they have... They use it all Mm. the time. The Mm. the whole food industry does. Um, But, you know, it's it's an absolute farce. You can't just say everything is psychoactive and illegal until proven otherwise. So, because basically that makes B&Q a major drug dealer. Because every single pot of paint and paint thinner on their shelf is an illegal substance. Or a gym, for instance, where you're sort of boosting your endorphins, etc, etc. So, it's an unworkable piece of legislation. And the the worst thing about that is, again, it just harps back to this concept of if you ban something, it'll go away. Mm. uh, We know it doesn't. Well, what I think we should do is I think we should make crack cocaine illegal. Oh, no, we did, didn't we? Oh, it didn't go away. But I thought if you make something illegal, it just disappears. Al Capone, for instance. Or, you know, the the levels of hypocrisy. The Kennedy, you know, uh, the president of the United States, his family fortune founded during Prohibition. Mm. It just goes on and on and on mm. and on and on and on and on. Yeah. I um I, I often liken the British drinks industry to the NRA. I think they are our NRA. This is a highly financially lucrative and politically shady organisation that holds up a lot of legislation. You know, if there's one group in the UK who do not want any change to the drug laws, it's Mm. the drinks industry. They are very, very pleased to own the monopoly on the only altered state we're allowed. And the last thing they want is a whole raft of new altered states coming onto the line. So... You know, again, I don't want to fall into the conspiracy theory thing, but it's pretty clear that the drinks industry would would lose an awful lot mm. were there a more more legal options. I think the intelligent option is to understand where there are conspiracies and where there's not, because there are huge conspiracies going on, mostly based around... It's when people talk to me about Big Pharma. I'm saying that no, rather than setting your ire, because it's always against scientists and doctors, mm. our friends, our people, mm. as if you, for instance, are in on the conspiracy and being paid by so-called Big Pharma. Mm. When it's capitalism, it's the, it's, you know, when you've got money involved with anything, then mm. it's going to go for the profit. Mm. Did I ever show you that artwork I did years ago, which is kind of just totally on this, where I sold a drug deal as an artwork? Do you know about that one? I think you. I think that's when we first met. When yeah, you it, told and, me about that. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it and it spells out absolute hypocrisy in in absolute vodka. You know, it's it's, mm. it's almost a crass artwork. Cause it's so obvious. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, there, there, like there, you there. know, I think the issue of the pharma industry is interesting because um, I would be a hypocrite if I if I said I didn't prescribe drugs. You know, I prescribe mm-hmm. SSRIs and all the other psychiatric mm-hmm. drugs all the time. And I take I, them. I, I have. <laughs> I, I have to. They're all we yeah. have. Um, yeah. But, you know, what we have in psychiatric prescribing is this situation of a whole raft of maintenance therapies 
that don't really cure anyone. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they're good, they work, they reduce symptoms in some people some of the time when they can tolerate them in terms of side effects. They do make you feel a bit brighter, they can help you sleep a bit better and they can keep your mood stable. So, you know, they have their place as symptomatic treatments. Mm -hmm. But they are maintenance therapies. You've got to keep taking them or the mm -hmm. symptoms come back. What we don't have in psychiatry is a cure. And we don't even use the cure word. Psychiatry is a pretty desperate place to work sometimes. It, it feels like a palliative care industry. Mm -hmm. you, you know, if you have a patient come to you in their early 20s who's come to you with a horrific history of child abuse and trauma, and they're now presenting with an addiction or a, a, a severe anxiety disorder like PTSD, the way the present system is, there's a pretty good chance that person's going to be coming back to you in their 60s or 70s mm -hmm. on the same mixture of drugs being used to mask their symptoms. Now, that is not good enough. That is poor. That is outrageous after 100 years of modern psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of any other part of medicine that would tolerate that. You know, we, we, we don't expect that in our cancer treatments. We don't expect that in our cardiac uh, care. Mm. We, we expect cures. We expect treatments and interventions that mean people can get better, be discharged and leave the service. Mm. Yet in psychiatry, we've become used to the fact that these things are not curable and you just have to carry it your whole life. And hopefully you'll be able to take medicines to keep things at bay. Mm. Now, as a psychiatrist, as a doctor, I'm, I'm deeply ashamed of that. We should be doing better. And this is why I've come to the psychedelics. This is what has brought me clinically to the door of MDMA particularly. Mm -hmm. It really is the newest, most innovative, best option for change that we've had in 75 years in psychiatry. It really is. It's really interesting. It, 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 yeah. it, it overshadows everything else. It's completely innovative. It's a completely new way of looking at mental disorder. And it is potentially curative. That it works, you get better, and you come off all the other meds, and you don't need to go back. Oh my. It's, uh, you know, we have to be careful with this whole subject of being too kind of messianic and panaceic. Yeah, yeah. But mm. it really does feel very different. And it's certainly worth a try in terms of research. So of that's where we are. I mean, the thing is that anything is worth a try. And prohibition, even prohibition of research. I mean, when I, I think it took at the, the David Nutton, when, when someone just saying it's, it's, we weren't allowed to ask these questions even. You can't yeah. ask yeah. a question. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what, what I love about the word prohibition is when I first started working in this area, well, 20 years ago, when I first started getting interested in this clinically, was um, the word prohibition was only ever used in reference to the sort of well-known political folly of the 1920s and 30s. Sure. You know, and that's what the word prohibition meant. But now it's popular usage to mean today's drugs laws, which mm. is great. And that, again, like going right back to the beginning uh, when we were talking that's a real shift in attitudes, mm -hmm. that increasingly people are seeing the concept of prohibition as a stupid folly that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and that's great to see people starting to move in that direction. When you look at what's going on with cannabis in the States and Canada and Czech Republic and Uruguay and Portugal, you know, mm. and Holland, you know, people are slowly, slowly nudging towards it. Yet, yet read, I yesterday I actually read that figures for law enforcement activity around marijuana are actually up in America over the past couple of years and this is a time when 60% of states are considering some kind of, or whatever it is, you know, legalization in some states it's completely legal mm. and yet law enforcement is up. People mm. are chasing people who are mm. getting dank and dirty with their mm. weed. It's mm. absurd. 
Yeah, I mean, look at this country. 20 billion a year we spend chasing people with cannabis um, and other drugs use in this country. 20 billion. Yeah. Now, you, you, you could just um, reverse that overnight yeah. and turn it into a profit yeah. by just having dispensaries where the people sure. who use these drugs can, can take them and, and get them safely. And when it comes to the other drugs, psychedelics, especially MDMA, like... It's just outrageous. When I see, read in the newspaper now of, you know, so-and-so, a young person died having taken MDMA. Mm. I, I don't say, oh, this awful, terrible drug. I say this awful, terrible, bloody government mm. with blood on its hands totally. again for the unnecessary death of someone yes. who died as a result of prohibition. Mm -hmm. um, the catchphrase I'm increasingly using these days is drugs don't kill people, prohibition does. Nice. And... You know, every single drug, and I include heroin and crack cocaine in this, every single drug can be taken most of the time safely. Of course. You know, I think the, again, Middle England, we're really bashing them today, aren't we? I think, again, you know, Middle England think everybody who uses crack cocaine once dies on the spot. They, of course they don't. I've got patients on my books in my addictions clinic who've been crack and heroin users for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment, please, before you ring in, um, that Dr. Sessa <laughs> here is uh, condoning the recreational use of all of these drugs. But do you know what? Um, I, it's not for me to condone or, mm -hmm. or otherwise people's activities. But for, in a terms of data, scientific point of view, mm -hmm. this prohibition that we've got paints a very, very unrealistic picture of the relative dangers and the relative benefits of drugs. Mm. And David lost his job for it. And he lost his job because he um, was asked in an unbiased way to put together a detailed report about MDMA and ecstasy. He gathered evidence from experts in the field, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, coroners, judges, parents, users. Um, I, I submitted two reports on therapy for, with MDMA, put it before the Home Secretary and said it shouldn't be Class A, it should be Class B. And the Home Secretary said, ah, hmm, that wasn't quite what we'd hoped for. And he said, well, you know, this is what it is. This is the scientific opinion. And they said, well, we're worried that this will send the wrong message. <gasps> Which Home Secretary was that? Though? Alan was Johnson, that, I think. Alan Johnson? And so I, I think so, or maybe, or, or he was the one that replaced them. And um, and David said, "Well, surely the message should be the truth." Mm -hmm. And they said, "Oh no, we don't like your tone." And so then he wrote an article called Equacy, the New Danger, in which he uh, looked at horse riding. And the reason he chose horse riding was because it was a similar number of people, about three to 400,000 people every weekend enjoy horse riding in this country, okay. which is a similar amount of people that take MDMA. Smart. And he looked at the levels of head injuries, level of long-term cognitive impairments, level mm -hmm. of death, level of crime, level of social exclusion, loss of job domestic violence, all of these things associated with both ecstasy users and horse riders. And of course, the horse riders came out 350 times higher in all of these groups. So he called it equacy, the new danger. Sure. And um, of course, yeah, Bet Middle England loved that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's senseless. It's, it's ridiculous. And I, I, I kind of, part of me is optimistic, Simon. Part of me hopes sense will prevail and someone will wake up and go, oh, yeah. But it, it's been 50 years now and they I'm, haven't. I'm, I'm firmly in... I mean, I, I find my comfort in nihilism completely <laughs> now. And, and as we talk here, I'm just thinking how big a journey this has got to be because I'm so naive. I believe facts, reason and information will prevail mm. yet time and time and time again mm. it absolutely doesn't well this is why we need to go back to the cultural shift like i said yeah yeah, yeah. you know we need eastenders in in on this 
I could ask Dudley because Dudley's been in EastEnders a few times. I'll, I'll, I'll see if he's got any influence for the script team. I did. Um, <laughs> I did a piece for the Victoria Derbyshire show two weeks ago, um, which is a daytime TV. I don't know. I, I've not watched it. I no. mean, you have to be kind of unemployed or or, uh-huh. or a student to, to to be watching television at and eleven have a, and have a television. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, yeah, to be watching television on eleven o'clock on a weekday morning. But it's it's big, you know. It's big, big coverage, and yeah. of course, of course, they. They had to dress it up with the killer drug from the jungle, you know, and all of these kind of like catchphrases that they use. But nevertheless, they had a panel on with three or four people speaking. They had me talking about the value of psychedelic therapies mm. on daytime mainstream BBC TV. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a lot of people since then have said this. They were all, you know, people within the community, psychedelic community. That was awful. They've they did such a bad job. But I, I still I've said to everyone, look, you got to realize this for what it is this is daytime tv and mainstream mainstream bbc the mm-hmm. fact they had it at all the fact they even began a debate about this mm-hmm. is amazing so maybe there is a shift maybe things are slightly shifting not through data mm. and not through the placard waving in the streets either through small gentle bites of the media sure um small trickle into the consciousness of people who've been lied to for mm-hmm. 50 years. Because they deserve to change their minds. Wasn't there a celebrity ayahuasca camp or something a few years ago? Uh, there's certainly been a lot of talk about that. I've been approached by a lot of TV companies who want to do a Big Brother-style drugs uh-huh. um, programme where they get groups of people and each week they take, you know, yeah, MDMA, yeah, yeah. ketamine, oh. cannabis. And, and um, they, they can't do it because <laughs> the regulatory approvals won't allow it. And I often I say to the producers, I, I say, look, I hope you aren't allowed to do this because I'd be mm. proper annoyed if you were allowed you were given ethical approval to do this as a TV show when we have to work so hard to do it as a piece sure. of research the idea that as journalists you can come in and just oh yeah the, 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 the costs of research they're absurd aren't they because uh, tell me about those the costs there's something about safes and security men following the... oh yeah well you know the, the hoops we've had to jump through for our MDMA study in the UK here are quite extraordinary we've had to have home office licenses in four different sites, even sites where the drug doesn't go. Um, talking to the home office, they, they, they treat you like you're a, a criminal until proven otherwise, even though you're a doctor trying to yeah. put on a study. Uh-huh. You know, the, our MDMA has cost us, it's going to, by the time we get going, it's working out at about £10,000 a gram. How many doses is a gram? Uh, well, uh, this, that's 425 milligram doses, wow. yeah. So... Um, two and a no, half thousand pounds. Uh, no, eight. Sorry, eight. Me, eight okay. Yeah, two and a half thousand pounds a dose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, and that—that's not just the the price of having the product made by the chemists, but also the testing, the validity testing, stability testing, storage, transport, mm. encapsulation, and all the regulatory approvals. You know, it's costing us pharmaceutical eight, cost being pennies, pennies costing us eighteen thousand pounds just to dispense it every time. You know, dispense it from the pharmacy and. You know, uh, just outrageously expensive and so many safeguards. And, like, if you, if we don't use one of the capsules in one of the sessions, it has to be, like, escorted back to the pharmacy by three people. Right. It then has to be destroyed in the presence of two doctors and a police officer. And they drop it into this block of gel that then encases it in resin. And then it gets sent to the home office for that's inspection. Beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's, that's, that's beautifully, I mean, obscenely beautiful. It's extraordinary that's... when you can just step outside the clinic and sure. there'll be a 13-year-old who'll sell you a gram for 30 <laughs> quid. A very good MDMA. 
you know. So it, it, it's an extraordinary uh-huh. thing that, that, we're, that we're working with. But, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about my, my hippie friend saying, why do you bother? I bother because it is the only way for my patients to get sure. this medicine. Abs- absolutely. You know? Shall we flip to the other side of this? Because we've been hammering on at Little, uh, little England, at Middle England, <laughs> Middle England, Little, <laughs> little Middle England. <laughs> but the other side of it that I keep colliding with is the kind of the woo side and the conspiracy side on the psychedelic, the, that, that side of things. That, mm. It's very, very strange to me, that world. It, it, it is strange, and again, going back to her breaking convention and how we manage it, um, part of me says it's great that you can go to breaking convention and in one room you've got, you know, Dave Nutt or Dave Nichols talking about receptor profiles uh-huh. and high-level data, and you go next door and there's some guy sitting cross-legged on the floor talking about the female spirits that live in the salvia leaves. Sure. And, and they've both got a platform and they're both valid. Or are they, is the question mm-hmm. I ask. You know, mm-hmm. I mean... The thing about culture, and culture is beautiful, and even religion is beautiful. It's, it's colourful, it's mad, it's delusional, but people like it and they dig that stuff. So, you know, you know fair play to them. Mm-hmm. Where it gets difficult for me as a scientist is when they then use a pseudo-scientific language to try and say it's science. Yeah. So if someone wants to believe in chakras and energy fields and these kinds of things. Cool, knock yourself out with it. You know, Mm -hmm. if it helps you, Mm -hmm. no worries. I have no problem. But it's when they then start saying, no, but if you look at this study that demonstrates the energy levels coming from the spleen, you know, and it's a crap study that is, you know, and it's like, so just don't bother trying to say it's scientific because... I I usually find it's quantum, quantum, therefore unicorns. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I don't, because I don't want to sound dismissive or intolerant of of these wonderful cultural things if people want to believe this stuff that's great and you know and i'm the same with my patients you know i if a patient comes into me and says look i've decided i'm not going to take these codeine tablets for my knee pain because i've found that when i wave a crystal over my belly button and face Mm -hmm. east Mm -hmm. my knee pain goes Mm -hmm. can you can you give me some advice on that now a lot of doctors (laughs) would say that's utterly crazy. Go back on the coding. Yeah. I don't say that. I'll say, look, him, man. Give him a compass. If, if, if you can wave a crystal over your belly button and your knee pain goes and you don't need to take this dangerous opiate, please continue. Sure. But if you're asking me to tell you what the physiological mechanism is for that, I'd have to say, look, I'm sorry, this is not a piece of research that is recognized. Yeah. So I have no problem with culture. It's where it crosses over into sure. people giving me really bad data for really bad studies and claiming it's science. And I don't think there's any need to claim this science. We don't need to prove God. It's a waste of time, you know, all that newer science. Mm. You just let people do it. But it's very frustrating in the scientific community, in psychedelics, because of that crossover, and there's a lot of woo involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but then, you know, um, that woo also translates back to the legislation, which is woo-based legislation. I think neoliberalism, when you actually look at the basis of neoliberalism, which is the overwhelming doctrine of the last 50 years, it's a belief system and absolutely not an economic system. It's not mm. a real it's thing. It's fiction. Fiction. Mm. Utter fiction. And as, as, as it increasingly fails again and again and again and again, no one changes. Mm. And mm. I think that's the most beautiful thing about science is if the evidence changes, then our, I'll say our thoughts will change along with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if if there were recognised points within the body that emanated energy that was measurable, mm-hmm. my God, 
every single university department would shut down tomorrow yep. and study nothing but that. Yes. Because it's not like scientists don't want these things to be true. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, and then and then people say, you know, you guys have just got closed minds. It's like, no, That's it's, it. it's just that it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and if it did, if there was any hint of it existing, How every single neurology department would shut tomorrow yep. and yep. do nothing but look at the chakras. That's the because one, that's, we would yep. love to see that. But well, it just ain't there, man. I know. I'm always beaten. That's the stick that inevitably hits me on the head is that I'm closed-minded. When all I... I'm, I'm, science is so magnificently wonderful and beyond any fairy story or any... Most woo only goes to, like, two levels, maybe one level, two levels, where science just goes on and on and on. It's an endless prism. Mm. Um, there's a beautiful the documentary on the CERN... Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Large Hadron Collider. And, and yeah. It was a beautiful for so many reasons. There were moments that brought little tears to my eyes. Mm. One of the one of the directors was saying, "They said, well, what what are you going to get from this? What 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 are we going to do with it?" He said, "Well, we don't know." Mm. So, what, why are you doing them? Because we can. And he said, "The only other people I know that work in the same way, are certain conceptual artists." And I went, "Oh, validation, validation." That's my identification. Mm. Right but then. Completely lost my point. Doesn't matter. Well, no. I mean, I think the other thing about science is any good scientist says, "I please prove me wrong." Oh, that's you right. The, the scientists there. There was a group of scientists when they were waiting for the first collisions and the first data, and they knew that those numbers were going to support one group or another group because you've all these competing groups sort of fighting, saying, "This is our theories and this is the experiment. We'll either prove or disprove," which is a lovely thing to do, prove or disprove, and. Um, there was one guy who had his life's work thrown out the window and he went, this is so exciting. Yeah. He was joyful. Yeah. Because it suddenly opened up all sorts of possibilities. Yeah. I'd love that in the real world. But yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, there's a part of me though, Simon, that I, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound arrogant. I don't want to say science has all the answers. And mm. I, as I mm. said before, I don't want to also be dismissive of people's beliefs because they're very powerful for people. Mm. Um, but I think the reason I'm, I can be quite, um, aggressively attacking Wu mm. is because I don't think that's helping the the cause of getting psychedelics licensed. You exactly. know, because um, if we're going to get them onto the statutes and onto the formulary, then people are going to run a mile if we if they think it's too Woodstock, mm -hmm. and so we have to actively turn our backs on that. And I need to find a way of doing that in a more a way that's more respectable because sometimes I can be a bit vocal, mm -hmm. but. Um, I, the only reason I get quite uh, irate is because I, I just see it as damaging. Because, sure. you know, when I look at my patients uh, who, who, who need these medicines, you know, these are shaven-headed, tattooed, tracksuit-wearing, lager-smoking, hard blokes from Western Supermare who would run a mile if they smelt incense or came into the clinic mm -hmm. and there was an Indian batik on the wall and sitar sure. music playing. Uh -huh. But these guys need MDMA more than anyone, yeah? So we need to we need to review the whole way we look at the concept of setting in psychedelic studies. Mm. You know, because all the studies I've worked on in the last 10 years, and we've done work with MDMA and LSD and uh, DMT and ketamine, psilocybin, we always have sitar music and incense playing. And why, you know, why, why not... Uh, a picture of Man United on the wall sure. or a Lamborghini. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's my patient's power objects, yeah. then those are the things we should be bringing. Mm -hmm. Because part of the work that I've been doing in the last 10 years with all of this 
and this whole thing of being on the fence is increasing accessibility and a lot about a lot of that is pushing out the old pushing out the 60s mm-hmm. bringing it up to the modern world for people it's it's as a visual artist myself one one thing i find very curious and i know from my own experience when i used to use lots of psychedelics a long time ago that it changed my aesthetic view and my visual needs to express whatever that was and you know you see these mostly horrible I'm not don't mean to be critical but terrible psychedelic artworks oh, man. don't get the, me started the, the, on the people with the skin ripped off and energy fields oh, pouring don't out don't get me directions. started on the airbrush dolphins that's it airbrush dolphins there was actually a really and nice the jaguars there was a golden airbrush dolphin on a pillow at Freeze Art Fair last week and it was gorgeous because it was fully knowing of all the absurdity of the image and mm. it, it utterly critiqued it and mm. was beautiful yet it was yeah but you know I don't want to be rude because no. some people dig that stuff man yeah but you know no it's not it doesn't <laughs> float my boat but actually that's a, just suddenly made me think of an interesting point that there does seem to be something inherently in the psychedelic experience that does push you towards certain aesthetics mm. yeah, yeah yeah you know and maybe people shouldn't be so interested in Lamborghinis. Maybe they should be more interested in trees. And and I do Should's think... Should's a difficult word. It but, is, but it is. Yeah. Um, you know, there's. we need to break down consumerism and this awful world yeah. we're, we're creating. And this is where psychedelics do... There is something inherently about the psychedelic experience that does push you away from that consumerist model mm-hmm. and pushes mm-hmm. you towards something that's more universal and more fundamental and well, in touch. I know with the when they put people in the fMRI scanners on LSD, which is a very recent study, mm, isn't Me it? being one of them. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. you actually went in there? Um, or, well, I or did you that, were one of the researchers? I, I, I did both. I, I nice. administered it and I, I'd received it. Yeah, I've I've been legally administered LSD, psilocybin, DMT, ketamine and MDMA in the last 10 years. How cool is that? <laughs> um, all of the, so it's quite good when I'm doing my talks because yeah. sometimes someone will stand mm-hmm. up and go, yeah, but you, have you ever taken this? And, yeah. you know, and I might be thinking as a doctor, I can't admit to this, but yeah. I can say, yeah, I've taken all of those. Yes, you can because formally, that's, that's really beautiful. In fact, when we did the first psilocybin study in 2009 in Bristol, I was the first person in 33 years to be legally administered a psychedelic in this country wow. when David Nutt injected me with intravenous psilocybin. Ooh, that's a treat, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. David's such a nice man too. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I want more than anything else, I want the data on this stuff. I want to know why does psychedelia draw us to certain kinds of graphics? Why does psychedelia... Why is there this similarity? People with DMT start to talk to aliens and things like that. Why mm. does this stuff happen? I don't want to dismiss it, I d- but I don't want to accept it as um, woo. Well, it's, it's, it's hard because I think the details of seeing, you know, a particular small blue entity on DMT happens to come from the fact that Terence McKenna said he small, saw small blue entities, and ah, then suddenly that's okay, what everyone. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's very hard because it's it's very hard to come at this from a virginal point of view. Sure. You can't help but see the um, what what's come before you culturally and mm. and what you expect. And you know, there's some beautiful examples of this. Um, in one of Shulgin's books, he talks about taking the diff- in all of his books he talks about taking lots of different drugs. But he talks about when when him and his wife took psilocybin, they suddenly saw 
Celtic patterns and Mexican temples and everywhere. Because, sure. you know, that's what they had in their mind of that's what this is about. Well, well, well is it? Because that's almost a universal, isn't it? Those diffraction patterns, those Mexicana... Yeah, but, but why Mexicana, you know, other than that we all know about Mexican mushrooms? Yeah, but, so, well, no, no, no. I would say if you look at actual Aztec artworks and things like that, then that is reflected back to... Because presumably they were using psychedelics as well. Yeah, so, I mean, there are some very well-recognised kind of visual changes with mm. all of these different mm. drugs that mm. are different for the different drugs. Um, you know, people often feel that um, LSD or uh, um, psilocybin is a more kind of organic experience in terms of the patterns and the shapes you see. Mm-hmm. Ketamine is a more of a kind of digital sort of Tron-like world, you mm-hmm. know. So there, there certainly are. And, and the work that we've been doing with the scanning has been really interesting to look at some of these things and why they why they seem to come up each time. And they are different for different drugs. And yeah, it's teaching us an awful lot about neuroscience and perception and visual perception and, and, and the brain and how it's working. Mm. Um, so the data is looking really interesting on all of those. Um, and uh, they've just—they're just doing a DMT study at the moment at Imperial, which uh, uh, I'm not sure when that's coming out. But all the data on the LSD and psilocybin stuff is all out there now. I love all this data. What are they doing with DMT study? What's the what's the thrust of it? That? It's a, it's essentially the same the same thing as they've done with LSD and psilocybin. It's a, what they call a multimodal imaging. So they're using uh, fMRI to look at the functional use of the brain and mm-hmm. what parts of the brain are being used in terms of glucose and blood flow. Do you want, do you want to explain that quickly? Because yeah. it's the bits that light up, isn't it? In yeah, the... so if you look at, say, an old x-ray, an x-ray just gives you an anatomical picture of the brain um, and a CT scan the same. You just get a static picture. But with functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, you can actually look at the brain in real time while it's working mm-hmm. and see which parts are being used. Um, and then you can do PET scanning, which actually looks at the connectivity between different parts of the brain, and you can uh, radio label it so you can see which parts are being used by the take-up of a radioactive isotope. Mm-hmm. So um, you can then put someone in the scanner and actually in real time make them do tasks so they carry out tasks, cognitive tasks, emotional mm-hmm. tasks. Mm-hmm. So we're really starting to get to the point of seeing the thoughts, as it were, and which different thoughts go to di- which different areas. And um, what they and they've done the same kind of structure, really, with both LSD, psilocybin, and now dimethyltryptamine DMT. Um, and it's it's teaching us an awful lot about the brain. And I think one of the things that's come out that's been quite interesting is. You know, there was a kind of old narrative with psychedelics that they expand the mind. And mm-hmm. and when you look out and you see the trees that are breathing, the hippies would say, yeah, man, it's because the trees are breathing all the time. It's just we can't normally see them. Sure. And so the idea that your eyes are widened to this increased perceptions coming in yeah. and you've got this wider picture of the world as it truly appears. What, what's been shown by the work with neuroimaging at, at Imperial is almost the opposite of that. You're very shut down externally. Um, when you take a psychedelic you're very much at the mercy of your internal mind mm-hmm. so it's not that your perception is broadened it's shrunken um, from the external world you're almost dead you know the, the brain is almost it's silent it's it's much more akin to you know uh-huh. a, a near-death experience or comatose experience mm-hmm. in many ways mm-hmm. large parts of the brain are completely shut down yet subjectively you're having this wonderful external experience mm-hmm. but it's all coming from within it's mm-hmm. a top-down process that 
what the drug does is it switches off the outside world mm. and it, it, it throws you into this internal world and where you make it all up. So it's all within you. That's now, that sort of resonates, actually, because if you look at other, say, near-death experiences, asphyxia experiences, drowning experiences, mm -hmm. which have this kind of uh, psychedelic quality to them when the brain is shut down and about to die. Mm. So it, it does make sense in, the, in that direction. So it's lear we're learning so much, but I think one thing that's interesting is just think where we would be, Simon, in neuroscience today had we been doing this since the 60s. Sure. You know? It was cut off in the 60s, mm -hmm. and we've had 30 or 40 years of complete mm -hmm. um, dark ages, and now we're doing it again. And so we're, what we're doing is we're going back to some of the studies of the 50s and 60s and doing them again with modern neuroimaging techniques. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're learning so much about consciousness. Of course, because that's... that's that's what I was bursting to get out is the big scientific thing is no one knows what it even means to be conscious here we are supposedly conscious in this studio right now yet we do not know we cannot put that down in terms of data or anything no. and that's exciting because we know that yeah I mean it, it's it's kind of almost as exciting as the birth of the universe, really. It's sort of, totally. you know, what the human. We're, uh, there's a pretty good chance that our brains are the most sophisticated uh, machine mm -hmm. in the universe now, or certainly in this galaxy, and possibly ever. Yeah. Who knows? And we're carrying one around in our head. Yeah, you know, all the time. And we don't really know how it works. But we do know that there's 90 billion neurons. And each neuron has potentially 10,000 connections between it and the next neuron, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. makes the number of potential connections larger than the number of um, atoms in the universe. So it's an immensely complicated piece of kit. And um, we're not even anywhere near working out how it works. Mm -hmm, and we're mm -hmm. certainly not anywhere near developing psychiatric drugs to deal with it. Um, which is why, as, as a psychiatrist... Um, I'm a psychotherapist above all, mm -hmm. because I think psychotherapy is the way to get people better. The drugs we have in psychiatry is sledgehammers, sure. where we need a fine-tooth comb. So this is why I like psychedelics, is because really people, you know, people look at psychedelics and think drugs. For me, psychedelics isn't about drugs at all. It's about psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a tool to affect good, focused psychotherapy, because that's where people get better. Sure. Um, I love the fact that Cary Grant was was he went through a big psychedelic mm. period? I mean, and he, he was from Bristol. And he was from Bristol. I never. Yeah, of course he was. What was his name? He grew up on the docks. What was his name? It was Archie, wasn't it? Uh, Archie yeah. something. Archie Leach, I think. Yeah, yeah. Archie Leach. They had a um, a, a little film um, festival about him in Bristol quite recently. Okay. And talked about LSD and, and stuff. And there's a documentary out, yeah. or it's either out or coming out. Maybe about it's his a screening for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that's lovely to think. And then. Because so many characters get caught up with this. Um, R.D. Lang, for instance, when I was doing the research on the talk for Leonard, I discovered that allegedly, we're, we're running over our 40 minutes thing, but that's fine, because we, we one of the things with this thread, the psych, potential psychedelic thread for Isotopica, is it doesn't fit within Isotopica, because hmm. Isotopica is too small a thread for the subjects that we're just beginning to touch on, and we've, we've gone an hour already. Um, what was I talking about? Cary Grant. Cary Grant. No. no, there was one in after that. That was uh, Lang. Lang. Or uh, Lang, is apparently. Is, is it Lang? Oh, okay, I didn't so know I, was, I, I mentioned him at a talk some years ago, and mm. some Scottish guy stood up in the audience and said it is Lang, actually. That's interesting to know. Pronun correct pronunciations. But one of the, trying to unpick 
reality conspiracy and everything else from the internet and from history of psychedelia because so much of it, the illegality means it's shrouded by that to start mm. off with. But there's a character I came across called Ron Stark. Do you know mm -hmm. that Ron Stark? Mm -hmm. Whose name I remember from the Operation Julie bus and this, that and the other. But mm. apparently, allegedly, or perhaps really, he approached Lang? Lang? Um, yeah. R.D. Yeah. Ronnie. Ronnie, yeah. He approached Ronnie asking him, do you want to be the front for the psychedelic movement because Timothy Leary is losing the plot mm. too much and offered him loads of money mm. or whatever to be mm. involved. Whether or not there's any truth in that whatsoever. Well, I mean, uh, Ronnie Lang was very uh, outspoken about it. I mean, he said, if you want to become a psychoanalyst, you have to do three things. Number one, read the works of Freud. Uh -huh. Number two, have your own analysis. And number three, take LSD. Okay. And he was very clear that this was a very important part of, of, of understanding human relations. Um, and, of course, in the 60s, uh, he was offering uh, psychedelic therapies. Um, I did an interview with a chap who worked at Kingsley Hall a few years ago, who, which was this experimental community that uh, R.D. Lang had set up in... Uh, um, is that the East End? I think it is, yeah. Because there's, there's, there's documentary There's Kingsley Hall there. where Gandhi stayed there when he came Ooh. over in the 40s, yeah. Okay. Um, so it was a, an experimental community in which there was a blurred line between the doctors and the patients mm -hmm. and everybody took LSD yep. and psychedelics were being used as treatment tools. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting about Ronnie is that it, it spurned a whole, a whole field of anti-psychiatry and it certainly or it rode the quest of anti-psychiatry, him and Cooper and others. And... It was very bashing of psychiatry, you know, mm -hmm. it was very bashing of the use of antipsychotic drugs and putting people into asylums. And I think that was a good thing, you know, in the 60s at that time, that had to happen. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the 60s um, psychiatric care was not a lot better than the 19th century asylums. Sure. So we needed that anti-psychiatry movement to blow it open and say, you know, this is outrageous, we've mm -hmm. got to stop doing this. But I think then what happened was, in my opinion, the whole concept of anti-psychiatry became a bit romanticised and the idea of, hey man, it's not schizophrenia, just take them off all their medications and give them a canvas and let them express themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I think those of us that have worked with schizophrenia know that um, whilst you don't want the pendulum to swing to the side of institutionalization and pump full of drugs, also there are certain people who do need psychiatric medications. Absolutely. And the idea that every every schizophrenic is a tortured artist mm -hmm. is, is, is as ridiculous as every artist is a closet schizophrenic. You know? Sure. I, I, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds, probably a thousand people with schizophrenia and almost all of them are lousy at art, just like sure. you and I, apart you, from yourself. Oh, the, well, <laughs> um, who knows? You know, who knows so it, 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 we have to be careful of falling into that romantic trap that yeah. mental illness is just like, hey man, let them all free. Mm -hmm. You know, psychiatry is... Is a, is, a, is a piece of science, you know? We, the, our understanding of the mind and the brain, and certainly when people become unwell, is based on hundreds of thousands of cases, sure. and there is a predictability in mental illness. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're all individuals, and people express themselves individually, but the idea that mental illness is all chaotic and random is just not true. Mm. And so I think there's a tendency in the general public to romanticise it and, and think we don't need any psychiatric farmer. And it's all just let people free and paint the meadows. Mm. You know, when that happens, they just become extremely distressed and unhappy. Extremely Ill. And they're the first to knock on the door of the psychiatrist sure. when they're dragged in, you know. So, um, you know, I, this is what I love about psychiatry. It's so 
broad. It's so holistic. I can't think of any other branch of medicine where, you know, on a daily basis, I have a patient before me, and I'm not just interested in a broken bone lying in a bed. You know, sure. this patient, they're a mother or a father or a child. They have a job. They have a home where they came from. They have a history. Have grandparents. They have desires and wishes. They have artistic desires. They have、um, relationships. I mean, psychiatry is about philosophy and. Uh, art and literature、mm-hmm. and society and sociology and anthropology—you know, these are all our active tools that we use in mental health care.、Yeah. I love that about my job. That's beautiful because that's the inverse of that comes from much of the woo side when they attack. Um, modern medicine has、mm. been non-holistic. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh my God, stop! I got into this debate with someone. Someone said the other day, all you do is give someone drugs.、Mm-hmm. I said,、oh. my God, I, th- I, I spend way more time taking people off medications、yeah. than I do putting them、sure. on. You know, it'd be so easy if if the drugs worked that well. So we, much. So we, much. Yeah. We Co- don't do that.、Yeah. We we work so hard in a very holistic way.、Um, you have to. You can't do your job without that. Of course, I mean it's. And, well, from my own point of view, I discovered years ago that I need antidepressants, and they've been incredibly useful for me. And it was against many years that I didn't do that. Was because I followed much more of a woo path, and it got me nowhere. Again and again and again, months and months covered in needles on my friend the acupuncturist bed, including <laughs> he gave me some love bombs. I think love bomb was the one that did it. He said, "Okay, you're really depressed today. I'm gonna give you a love bomb." I thought, "Great." Stuck a load of needles in my head and all my arms and everything, and he gave me this love bomb, and I thought nothing's happened.、Mm. And so it was cruel. That's because you didn't believe in it enough. Ah,、uh, my fault again. You see. <laughs>、okay. so, so anyway, look, we've we could just. I think we're going to have to come back to this because we just go on and on. And on well, I'd love to. I'm. It, I've really enjoyed this. Thank、mm, you very much.、Mm, yeah, it's. This is just the beginning. <laughs> Ben, thanks very much for coming in here to London's Resonance 104.4 FM. When you're under that, more to come. Thank you very much. Good luck with it all. Hooray! Hey. This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24/7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.